And we're live. Uh, welcome back to Deaf Radio, May 7th, 2023. Got uh, Rick with me in the studio, as always, the virtual studio. How you doing, Rick? Ah, doing pretty good, Matt. How about yourself? I was, you know, I had a bit of a stomach virus, a stomach bug past few days, but uh, I'm feeling pretty good today. Excellent. Glad to hear you're on the mend. And uh, I heard you got a new mic. I did. I did. I, um, you know, I, too many of my coworkers had one and I thought, you know, I gotta, I gotta bust out the voice. And now I've got this thing that is uh, in the way on any and all Zoom calls. So there's no. I think it's worth it if you're uh, working remote. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think it. My coworkers who have mics, it like I feel more connected to them that I'm not talking mm. to them through some teeny connection. So. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's great for the listener, um, and you're you're totally right. I, I think it's like if you're working remote full time, it's like it's it's a small investment compared to like your desk and your monitor and headphones and all that stuff. So, um, HTMX is the future, apparently, according to uh, this article on Hacker News. I, uh, you know, I've heard of HTMX. It's been around for a while. I've never used it. Um, but I don't know a whole lot about it. I think it's, I don't know if it's, is it JavaScript or is it just a purely um, something you use on the back end? Like, how, how does it, do you know how it actually works? Yeah. Uh, so it is, uh, you know, brief history lesson from somebody who who's read a little bit about it. Um, it is Intercooler 2.0, and what Intercooler was was this JavaScript framework that let you do like AJAX requests um, from basically from HTML or from server side rendered code. So the wait, 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 hold on, say that again. It let you do AJAX requests mm-hmm. from server side code, right? I thought, okay, so I'm thinking AJAX request, that's like um, something you do on the front end. No? Uh, well, yeah. So so it with server-side rendered code, you can generate uh, HTML that does AJAX. Okay. So so it must Without come writing with, uh, JavaScript. Gotcha. But it, but it does use JavaScript. Right? Uh. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm sure that it's uh you know its makings are JavaScript backed unless they're doing like Rust in ASM or WebAssembly or something. Um, I guess gotcha. it's probably so, a JavaScript library, but the interface to it is through HTML attributes. Right. So you're not actually whatever. writing. So you're not actually writing JavaScript. You're you're writing whatever Ruby or something, and then that's creating the HTML that then the JavaScript library interacts with somehow? Uh, yeah, you could write in, in Ruby. It's, uh, you know, the, the base example that they've got is um, you've got a button that mm-hmm. has two attributes. This is going to be a, um, 
like even backing up a step further, they ask a question, which is, why should you only be able to replace the entire screen when you click on something? Right. All right, you click on an anchor, and it's just going to reload, you know, the the entire page, like the whole thing, all HTML gets wiped, and then it gets replaced. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the example, they have a button. Uh, it's got one attribute uh, called HX post. Uh, and the value of that is the endpoint. So it's slash clicked. Okay. And, and just real quick, this is, um, if you go to htmx.org, they've got a little snippet. That's what we're, that's what we're looking at here. Yep. Yeah. Just reading straight off that snippet. Uh, and then the other attribute is HX dash swap and the value okay. is outer HTML. Uh, so, so yeah, I recognize the outer HTML as like. You know, that's like something you have access to in JavaScript. If you're messing with the DOM, you know, yep. you can get element.outerHTML. So, yep. but yeah, so how does this work actually? Yeah, so in that case, you've got a button and you're telling it essentially like, hey, this is the endpoint that when I click this button, I want you to fetch that endpoint. And then HX swap is specifying what to do with that HTML that came in from that Ajax request. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can also tell it to swap, uh, you know, the DOM ID of a different element. So if you want to click a button and then it refreshes, uh, you know, another div on the page, you can hand it an ID to that div. It'll replace the contents of that div. Uh, in this case, this is just the bare example. So you click the button button is going to disappear and then slash clicked whatever html comes down the wire is going to replace that button okay so it's like so in this case the outer html is um the outer html of the button itself so whatever whatever is returned from that click endpoint it's going to replace that button's outer html with that content exactly so so does that mean, I guess in this case, that endpoint should should only return the HTML that should go in that where that button used to be. Like in other words, it's not returning a full page. It's the the endpoint has to know to return just the content that's going to be used to replace the button. They talk about the concept of HTML fragments. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right about that. Uh, you know, if a full another web page came down that had a, a head and, uh, you know, a bunch of new CSS or whatever, um, you know, I, I don't know enough about how it handles that situation. If it does, if it's smart enough to say, like, ignore the head and just use the body. Uh, right. But they do talk about fragments. Hmm. Yeah, I would think um, it probably has some kind of uh, facilities for... You know, because I, I don't think you would want to write all, all these little endpoints that just replace parts of the HTML. You would probably just want to have like one endpoint that returns, you know, you have all of your rendering logic on the client. And depending on whatever the state, the new state is, assuming you, the endpoint updates some value in the database or something, the HTML that get, gets rendered changes slightly in some way, right? So, um, 
Yeah, I would imagine, I would, I would think that uh, this library, without knowing too much about it, is able to pick out the parts of the HTML um, that should change, sort of, like yep. not magically, but maybe you have some attributes on certain uh, HTML, HTML elements that correspond with each other, you know, and um, it's kind of smart enough to swap out just those parts. Yeah, so you are exactly correct. Uh, I just found this in the docs. There is a attribute called HX select, uh, and you can pass it a CSS query selector. So it will look at the, the response to HTML and just grab, you know, whatever that query selector returns and then mm, okay. that. So gotcha. Yeah. Really so, so you might have like a, a button with an ID, a foobar, right? And then um, the selector would just be perhaps uh, foobar, right? And so, so it's just kind of like replacing itself with itself, like the new version of itself that it gets from the server. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hmm. If you're, uh, you know, if you're doing the classic, uh, you know, to do app, and you are editing your existing to do, you change its value from, you know, do this to do that, uh, you hit submit, and it posts up to, uh, you know, whatever slash, slash to do, um, or whatever the update path is. And right. then you get the server is going to, you know, then re-render the new version of that particular to-do. Uh, and you could, you know, if you wanted to get fancy, you could have it return an HTML fragment. If you wanted to just select the, you know, whatever your, your main content div is in that piece of HTML, you can do that. And it will then get you the new version of it. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's really cool because it sounds like from the from the developer's perspective that you're just writing, you know, your normal views on the server, and because all you have to do is like render the view based on whatever the state of the to dos are, right? Whether they're they're checked, they're going to have a line through it or something like that. And instead of reloading the whole page, it just kind of like replaces the parts that need to be replaced. It sounds a lot like. Um, you know, Rails has something similar to this. I think at first they had Turbolinks. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if there, if it, it's Turbolinks is still a thing. I know there's like Hotwire now. Some maybe that's like the successor to Turbolinks, but it's a similar idea where you're updating parts of the DOM not through, you know, coding JavaScript, but just through like this this library, this JavaScript library that sits in the background and makes the AJAX calls and gets the HTML back and like intelligently swaps out the HTML fragments that are already on the page. Yeah, it's uh, someone on Hacker News uh, mentioned that, that it's like a it's a sibling of Hotwire, which is the hmm. kind of the, the TurboLink successor that they both I... do approximately the same thing. Uh, for some reason, maybe it's just that the docs for HTMX are way better than the Hotwire docs. Like this, somehow this just really clicks for me. Like I get this. Yeah, let me let me take a look at the Hotwire docs real quick, because I'm thinking there's no reason why you couldn't use HTMX in a Rails app, right? Absolutely no reason. No. Oh. <laughs> I accidentally landed on something called Hot Rails which is uh, not what I wanted. 
But uh, well, I like the Hotwire website. It's got this cool illustration. But uh, as far as I know, it's okay. So it's made up of three parts: Turbo. This is Hotwire, by the way. Turbo, Stimulus, and Strata, which I've actually never heard of. Oh, that's not even how he had that premiere. It's Strata premieres in 2023. Okay, so so Turbo is the heart of Hotwire. Um, it's a set of complementary complementary techniques for speeding up page changes and form submissions, yada yada. Um, so it streams partial page updates over WebSocket. Okay, and you don't have to write any JavaScript. So far, sounds pretty similar to HTMX. Mm-hmm. Now, stimulus, I think, is that small, like if you do need to write some JavaScript on the client, stimulus is sort of like a, almost like a jQuery successor where it's like, it's not React, right? It's not like a full-blown mm-hmm. rendering engine, but it gives you enough tools to kind of um, do some cl- client-side programming with JavaScript. So it sounds like Turbo is sort of the main analog for HTMX, but yeah, but I think with Turbo, you you probably yeah. So this is this is the part I don't know for sure. Do you need to use Rails with Turbo, or can you use Turbo with like Sinatra or Hanabi or some other like Ruby framework? Uh, my understanding is that you can use Turbo outside of Rails. Um, it does have its own repo, so. It, like, but it is in, in theory, yeah. Uh, in practice, I'm sure someone has done it. Uh, I I don't know off the top of my head, to be honest. So Turbo has this thing called Turbo Frames. It says uh, most web applications present pages that contain several independent segments. Okay, makes sense. Um. With Turbo Frames, you can place those independent segments inside of frame elements that can scope their navigation and be lazily loaded. So scope navigation means all interaction within a frame, like clicking links or submitting forms happens within that frame. Um, yeah, I so, so so Turbo Frame, yeah, it's actually like a HTML component call or HTML element called Turbo Frame. So we're kind of like stepping outside the bounds of standard HTML, I guess, with uh, Turbo. Although, maybe it's like a custom, uh, you know, there's such a thing as like custom elements in HTML. Yep. But with HTMX, it's more like you're just sort of, you're using non-standard attributes on standard HTML elements. And it seems totally agnostic to language because it's it's really just the JavaScript library that interacts with um, those custom, uh, custom attributes on the HTML. So you can use any programming language to generate that HTML. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can do with uh, with Turbo, you can, you know, in theory, you can use any language to generate the, the HTML. Um, there's no, they've got a, hmm. there's a spec for what uh, HTML fragments should look like. So, and it's it's honestly not too complicated. Um, you could, you know, if you wanted, I'm sure you could set up like a serverless uh, framework to render these things out. Mm-hmm. Um, I One think thing... the, you know, yeah, go ahead. I guess just like the difference between the two of them 
is like you were noticing that Turbo has this, um, you know, it's a custom HTML element called Turbo Frame that is kind of like, it's a wrapper around code that you want Turbo to manage. And that to me, like that compared to what HTMX is doing, where it's like, hey, just give me the, the ID of the div that you want me to replace. Um, it's a it's a similar approach, but Turbo is a little I don't know. Um, do you get do you get the sense that HTMX is a little lower level? Like you you have like sort of lower level primitives for working with this idea, you know, with the HX select and the HX um, swap and stuff, things like that, where you're actually like passing in uh, HTML selectors and Outer HTML and things like that. Whereas with Turbo, it seems like you're, it, it's more of an abstracted kind of thing where you've got this Turbo frame and uh, whatever else is involved with Turbo. I'm not sure, but that's uh, my sense know, so far. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think part of that is that you know once you step foot in the Rails ecosystem, there's this pile of conventions to learn mm-hmm. uh, that can make a lot of things easier. Like the default experience uh, requires less code and less thought, but you got to figure out the conventions. So one one thing right that, on that. Um, yeah, one thing that I'm kind of wondering about reading through the HTMX docs is how well does this scale to like more complex situations where updating a to do might update an element in a completely different spot, and so. Um, within the, I guess within the up, update, let's say you're checking off a to-do. Okay, this is an example. You got a to-do list, um, you got a list of to-dos, you can check them off, and maybe somewhere else in the application, uh, in the UI rather, like let's say up, up in the top right, uh, separate from the list, you have like your total to-dos, and it's just a count. You know, maybe you've got like seven, seven undone, undid, Seven to-dos that need to be done, right? So you you click, you, you check off one of the to-dos. And so I guess within that button, right, you would need to tell it to update the to-do that it's, that it's next to using maybe a CSS selector, I guess. But you would also have to tell it to update the counter at the top right. So right. to me, it's like, I'm thinking, okay, this can get really kind of hairy really quickly if you have a lot of dependencies on the data. Like if, if your action updates some data that has a lot of UI dependencies, you have to know everywhere. And if you have more than one way of updating the to-do, maybe there's a button next to the to-do, maybe there's a drop-down as well, you have to tell all of those actions to update all the same places in the UI. Yeah, so they, I'm kind of, I'm kind of looking at this. They've got this concept of out of bound um, updates where. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's. Let's hear about that. So, yeah, so they've got like three, they actually have four different approaches. Um, and their recommendations are generally use the first approach. 
sometimes you can use the other approaches. Um, so one approach is to just expand your scope of what gets updated. Oh, so, so like, gotcha. if it's possible, okay. uh, you know, rather than having this really tight bound around like, okay, I'm editing this particular to do, and I'd like to just get it rendered back, I could move that scope up so that it also includes this counter up in the top right. So that whole right. portion of the page would get updated. Yeah, and you could you could expand that all the way up into like the root element, right? And just it would almost be like you're writing a multi-page app, but instead of actually reloading the page, you're just kind of like swapping out the HTML each time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that uh, you know originally that's what Turbo Links did was when you clicked a link, it would fetch an AJAX request, get that HTML, bring it back, and then replace the uh, the inner HTML of the body element. Um, so, like, it's a lot of, I guess, not that, uh, you know, 20 kilobytes of, of code versus 100 kilobytes of code coming in, like, it's going to make a huge time difference. Uh, maybe the render time is a little bit slower. But, you know, end of the day, like, it worked great for TurboLinks. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Basecamp was completely built with it, and that was extremely responsive so worst case you can just re-render that whole page or you know as far up as you need to go um, and get a response back and have it be dynamic i could see the situation though where a programmer starts out with some narrowly scoped um updates right and then like the scope of the app sort of changes and they add a counter somewhere else you know mm -hmm. And they just kind of forget to update. It could be very easy to forget to update those places. But uh, I also noticed they have um, a, like like an attribute, like a polling attribute. So you can, um, on your counter, you can put an endpoint that maybe gets the total count of to-dos. Obviously, this is going to be a little bit less efficient because you're, you have to make more, more requests, but you can, up, you can pull the to-dos count endpoint every second or something mm -hmm. to get a, you know, to, to make sure that stays in sync. Yeah. And I think they also support, um, web sockets. So. So you, you can know, actually push data to it. Yeah. So there, so that's a possible approach. You know, you just hook up a, a stream to each thing that might be updated, have it, have the server manage that. Another approach, this one is like, I don't know, this, well, I'll, I'll let you judge um, how you feel about this one. So okay. this is the out-of-bound response option. And so uh, in this example where we've got a to-do and we edit the to-do, we update it, and then we also want that counter to be updated, what you can do is in the response HTML, you know, you've got your form, like your you know, your div that manages that to do, you return that, and then you also return the the div that that manages the um, the counter, and you give it a attribute of hx swap oob, um, hmm. and you give that uh, it's it's it looks like a CSS selector. It's like before end colon and then the the DOM ID for that. 
that particular thing. Um, so it's like, here's your form. Oh, and by the way, here's your div that you're going to use to update this thing. And this is how you connect it to the thing. Go. Gotcha. Yeah, the HX swap OOB. I love that name. Uh, attribute allows you to specify that some content and a response should be swapped into the DOM somewhere other than the target. This allows you to piggyback updates to other element updates and response. Okay, so um, let's see. They got a div here, ID alerts, OOB equals true. So the first div will be swapped into the target the usual manner. Into the target, okay, there's a bit of a typo there. The second div, however, will be swapped in as a replacement for the element with the ID alerts and will not end up in the target. Okay, so I guess by default, it'll swap, like if you have, so you don't need to tell it explicitly what to update as long as the IDs match. <clears throat> Excuse me, as long as the, so, okay, that's a bit, that's a bit, um, it's a bit better than what I was imagining. So yeah, in this example, they have an out-of-bound update. I'm still kind of curious about sending these HTML fragments. And it, it just seems like you're, well, yeah, I can't tell if in these examples, they're just sort of like, they're sending the whole rendered page and it's just like grabbing the HTML fragments that it needs, or if, or if the backend is actually responsible or should be responsible for only sending certain HTML fragments. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's I think it supports a lot of different um, uh, call it modalities of what the backend is going to be rendering. Um, you know, I think the, you know, the, the first time somebody uses this, they're probably going to bolt it on to an existing, uh, you know, existing set of endpoints, monolith or whatever, and just get back all that HTML and, you know, re-render the whole page, right? Like day one, yeah. okay, cool, I got this thing working, uh, nice. And then they can start to drill in and say, okay, well, I just want to get this, you know, I just want the to-do div off of the main to-do page. I don't want the, the head. I don't want any of the CSS. I don't want anything. I just want this one div. So they can do that, that HX select to, to pull that in. And then, and this is, this is a, I mean, this strikes me as both like awesome and terrible that, you know, in your example where you're updating the to-do and there's a counter, let's say there's also like, I don't know, maybe two other elements on the page that are going to get updated in some way. Mm -hmm. um, so now you, you, you know, send, uh, you know, send a post up to an endpoint and the endpoint can just return back like all of these different pieces of HTML to tell you where to put them. It's like this, I don't know, I don't know exactly how to describe it. It's like this polymorphic um, endpoint that understands, maybe it understands what the page looks like, or it understands all of the attachment points on a page that might be modified. It somehow right. calculates those and then brings back the right HTML. It would have to know where all of the, well, it would have to know what, 
what data changed. Well, obviously it knows that because it's changing the data, but at the endpoint that is at the, the backend endpoint would have to know what data has changed and also all of the um, all of the UI components on the front end that are dependent on that data. Yeah. To, to know which HTML to change. Um, you know, the HX, I'm looking at this, I'm still looking at this HX swap OOB. So if you pass true to HX swap, it'll just re replace itself, whatever you get back from the, uh, from, from the endpoint, uh, which is, which is equivalent to outer HTML. So true and outer HTML values are equivalent. And I guess in this out of bounds example, since, okay, in this out of bounds example, the fragment that's getting updated is not the same fragment that's initiating the action. So it, it looks for what to replace by the ID. Um, yeah, I don't, I would have to see, I, I would want to see, actually, I think this article has um, some like sample closure project where he, uh, he made a simple to do. Okay, here we, here we go. So yeah, he's got his uh, closure example. It's a simple to-do list. This is the um, HTMX is the future article, by the way, for those that are for those that are following along. So it adds a, a custom header to the response. I'm sorry, to the request. So the browser sends a request. Um, this is like, sorry, just to back up a second. This is a, an HTMX initiated request, right? So you've got uh, HTMX, oh, sorry, HX dash whatever, and you got the endpoint. HX dash post, for example. So it sends a it sends a request and, add, and it adds this header HX request equal, equals true, which means on the server we can send different responses accordingly, very much like content negotiation. Um, I suppose that is, um, yeah, content. That's like a content type header. Sorry, a little slight tangent. Uh, the rule of thumb for a handler is roughly parse and validate the request, run the business logic. If it's uh, if the request is HTMX, return the hypermedia fragment, otherwise return the full page. So you're, you're actually looking for the HX request header. If it's an HX request, you send the fragment, otherwise you, you just render the full page. And let's see what he's got here for the actual code. That's just the business logic. Yeah, I'm still not quite sold on the idea of, or I'm not, I'm not quite, I mean, it's probably just me not having experience with the framework, but knowing, having to like figure out or extract out the HTML fragment. Uh, that's the part that still gets me, I think, is how do you go about extracting out the relevant HTML fragment to return? On the server side, you're saying? On, on the server, yeah, sorry. Uh, well, so extracting out the relevant, on the server side, I mean, let's, let's walk through an example. Maybe it'll just show up. Yeah. So you're, 
you know, you want to update the to-do. So you, um, so what you're patching to that to-do ID mm-hmm. and the server says, okay, right. Uh, yeah, let me find that, that to-do in the database. I find it. I see the, up, the attribute you want to update. I update the attribute. Uh, I've got a, you know, a partial template for that, uh, for that to do. And I, I, and I guess that it needs to make a connection. Like, how is this being rendered on the page? What's the DOM ID of this to do? Uh, Rails has a convention that it's the, uh, it's the class name underscore, and then it's the ID in the database. So it could say, okay, cool. Here is your, here's your fragment. Here's your, uh, and you have to, you have to design it, right? That it's going to return a fragment rather than an entire HTML page. But here's the fragment. Uh, here's the ID that I'd like you to update. And then it ships that down the wire that gets picked up by the HTMX receiver that then replaces the inner HTML for, for the, uh, the element it finds with that CSS selector. Yeah, I guess you, you just have to um, make sure that your fragments or let's say partials, right? Like if you're t- using templating, some kind of templating library on the, on the back end, I would assume you're, um, you're just sending the correct uh, partial or fragment. So he, he has this line in the, um, in the blog post where, you know, where he's talking about, where he's talking about this uh, request. So he says, so far, this seems a recurring theme when I've been developing hypermedia applications with HTMX. Uh, hypermedia applications, that's interesting. By the very architectural nature, if you can support updating part of a page, return a fragment. Otherwise, the browser needs to do a full page reload. So either redirect or just return the entire HTML. So it seems like you you do have to decide. Um, there, there does have to be some, some thought put into, okay, can I just update part of the page? Which part of the page needs to be updated? You know, there, there, there's some, it's not like you just get, well, you know, with React, for example, you you just declare your data dependency in the component, and it and it will take care of tracking that that you know the the data changing over time, and it'll update itself and so on. There's more to it than that, but and you also have to be careful of needlessly re-rendering. Um, but but it does seem like with this approach, you you do have to put some thought into okay, what needs to be updated parts need to be updated, returning the correct fragment. I would need to, um, personally, I would need to spend some time with it to figure out if that's something that, that, that is, I mean, in the beginning of the article, (laughs) he lays out a lot of problems with uh, single page apps, Uh, hugely increased complexity, both in terms of architecture and developer experience. Yep, that's a big check right there. Uh, you have to spend considerable time learning about frameworks. Yeah, pretty much. Tooling is an ever-shifting landscape in terms of building and packaging code. Yeah, pretty much. Although I don't know if that's if that is caused 
if that's because of single page apps or just because JavaScript is a hugely popular language, there's a lot of unsolved problems in, in this area. Hey, import Managing maps are completely supported, by the way. Sorry, what is? Import maps. Safari finally allowed for import maps. So you can now, uh, rather than having to like require all of your external libraries in the build step, you can now do that uh, as a meta tag. Oh, right. So you can, um, right. So that's like ESM. Is that ESM modules? Uh, uh, e Somehow that question doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> so, so yeah, you don't have to like um, bundle up a, a giant uh, like bundle.js anymore. You can just, you can just, um, you, the browser has a native module support now. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. So, so yet another change to tooling. Okay, that's what you're getting at. Yeah, so that's constantly changing for sure. Um, so there's obviously a lot of pain points with single page app development. There's also some performance issues. The client has to download this huge JavaScript to run. Um, Progressive enhancement. You people that disable JavaScript are SOL. But at the same time, um, you know, with this approach, there's a couple of downsides I can see. One being, it seems like you have to make a round trip to the server every time you want to do something. Yep. Um, you, which I, maybe maybe that's actually a a pro to this. Um, you have like a, so you can't do like, as far as I understand, maybe there's something about this in the docs, but you can't do optimistic updates. So like an optimistic update would be if I'm checking off one of the to-do to items, the client just instantly checks it off. It's instantly responsive. And then it sends the request to the server and then the server comes back with the response. 99 times out of 100, it's going to be it's going to match the optimistic update every once in a while. There might be some weird thing that happens, uh, some kind of error on the server or a validation issue where it's different from the optimistic update. So the, up, the update on the client has to roll back to match whatever the server returns since the mm -hmm. server is the single source of truth there. Um, so you get a, a little bit of latency with the interactivity, I think, um, with HTMX. They might have, I haven't, I didn't see this in the docs, but they might have an answer for that. I would, I would imagine. Well, no, I, I don't see how you could have it, how you could do that without writing JavaScript. Yeah, no, that's that's completely JavaScript land. Uh, one, one feature I have built in um, using Turbo that's, you know, you you could solve it using HTMX is the ability to on a list of things to star one of these things I mean, you can star mm -hmm. any of the things but you're basically just favoriting things in a list and uh, the way that gets done is with turbo so there's a um you know there's like a little empty star icon uh when you click it it ships a request up to the server to favorite that particular item and then the response comes back down and that that item is in its own turbo frame. And so it gets, uh, it gets re-rendered from the server. Yeah. Um, 
in general, that happens within 100 milliseconds. Sometimes it's a little bit less. Sometimes it's a little bit more. It, so, you know, if a frame, you know, 60 frames a second, a frame is roughly 16 milliseconds. It's like five to seven frames. So it's yeah. not immediate. It's not gaming speed, but it's pretty quick. Well, it's certainly a lot faster than a full page reload. Absolutely. Which I think is, I, for me, a better way of framing this is like you, you should compare it to a multi-page app. I think. I think that's a better way of thinking about it because the architecture between the two are much similar. So you're getting a, a big boost in without changing, seemingly without changing too much of your architecture and your code, this is similar to Turbolinx, right? You can just kind of switch over to this new style, this HDMX style, and just update instead of like refreshing the whole page, reloading the whole page, getting a fresh whole new HTML page. You're just kind of updating parts of it. It's going to be much faster, I think. So it's going to be a win. Now going from a single page app to, to this, I don't see any, um, well, there, there's some benefits to the user, I think, in terms of um, progressive, uh, what's what's the term? Where, um, let's say the, the user has JavaScript turned off, right? They're still gonna be able to interact with the page just fine. Whereas with a single page app, they forget about it. Um, you'd be lucky if the page, <laughs> if you see anything beyond, let's just like a blank page, yeah, please enable JavaScript. Sometimes you might see that less so these days than before. I wanted to check out the Hacker News comments because there's got to be some naysayers out there. And I kind of want to hear the criticisms of, of this thing. Yeah. So, okay. So the first, <laughs> this is like the top comment. Oh, wait, no, let's we used to hold on. I lost the top comment. Okay, here we go. Uh, so this guy says, it's kind of funny to me that many of the pros of this approach are the exact reason so many abandoned MPAs, multi-page apps in the first place. Okay, for instance, a major selling point of Node was running JavaScript on both the client and the server so you can write the code once. Mm. In theory, yeah. And he continues, it's a pretty shitty client experience if you have to do a network request for each and every validation of user input. Okay, so he's using the example of, for example, validating uh, an email address in a form. Right, and he's making that judgment that, that um, you know, making the user wait 100 milliseconds creates a shitty client experience. That, eh, I don't know, 100 milliseconds for a validation, like... Is that shitty? As long as it does not inter interrupt the typing, I don't see that as being that all, all that bad. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, he continued. There's more, though. Also, he says, there was a push to move the shitty code from, <laughs> from those. Okay, let me start over. There was a push to move the code from the server to the client to free up server resources and prevent your servers from ruining the experience for everyone. Okay, let me let me think about what he's saying here. Moving, there's a push to move the server code to the client to free up server resources. That makes sense, I think. And that's like one of the um, that's like one of the advantages to 
so so my app mochi is it's an offline first app or it's a local first app so it, you can actually run it completely offline without a server and part of the beauty is that of that is like everything almost everything runs in the client so my server costs are, are really low um, they basically come down to just syncing data and so there, there's a point to be made there that's not like a well, his point is it to me isn't really a point for the user. That's more of a point for the startup that's offloading the work to the client because they can reduce their server costs. I don't see that as being strictly a a better user experience. He's kind of trying to make the argument that well, when you free up server resources, uh, you get snappier responses. Yeah. So, I mean, in that case, if you're trying to build, uh, you know, a game on, you know, web-based game, the closer it is to the keyboard, the better it is, right? Yeah. Like those types of, of experiences, yeah, this absolutely matters. So there, you know, there is a, and you know, the, the snappiness of like, hey, I'm used to using a mobile app. I, I don't want to wait you know, five frames for something to happen. Um, there are a lot of experiences where that is, I think, the correct solution. Not all of them. So there could be a category yeah. of things where, you know, if you're building uh, like a B2B app where users are used to sitting and waiting, you know, 500 to 1,000 milliseconds for a page to do anything, this type of a... Of a um, back and forth wouldn't be an issue whatsoever. Yeah, I think like with so many things, it really depends on the, it, it really depends on the use case. Some some apps demand uh, single page apps, I suppose. Certainly I wouldn't be able to create my app without JavaScript because it runs offline. So you, you need that. But, but yeah, depending on your use case, HTMX might be a better choice. You know, there was also, I think last week or this week, yeah, last week, Next.js had a conference, I believe. Familiar with Next.js? Next.js, it's, uh, you know, it's the next best thing. Uh, you know, I, uh, I remember we were using it uh, at Common. Yeah, we were. For, you know... And I, I still don't understand why we're using it other than that's the framework that was there, so we're going to use it. Um, Pretty much, yeah. Like, Sorry. What? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, like, I don't know. Maybe help me understand, like, the value of it. I thought Next.js was simply there for, I'm going to get a lot of hay for this, for SEO purposes. That when Google would check out your site, it would get a server-side rendered version of your page, and it would be able to interpret what was going on and then give you seo as opposed okay. to full javascript they get nothing you get a penalty help me understand yeah yeah i'm trying to remember the initial like pitch for an xjs and it was something it definitely had to do with server-side rendering um sorry i i misspoke it nextjs didn't have a conference for cell or wait no we talked about this in an earlier episode it's not it's not Vercel. is it's pronounced Versal, I think. Versal had a uh, had a keynote 
recently. Last week, actually, they announced a bunch of stuff. Um, we'll we'll come back to that in a second, but but yeah, Next.js is they had some. There were a few novelties with Next.js, if I remember correctly. One was it had directory-based routing. So in your project, you could just create directories, um, sort of like you would do with like an Apache server, I guess. Um, and you would just like put your pages in the directories, right, that you wanted them to route to. And it also added a few methods to React components. This was back when React was class-based, uh, class where you would, you would actually like extend the React uh, class, the React component class. It added some methods like, I don't know, before server or from get data from server or something like that, which essentially ran during the uh, server-side rendering portion. So you would, um, in different, different React frameworks have different ways of, of doing this where, so in, in React, you, um, you declare your data dependencies for each component on the component, right? Um, that data can be just a global store of data, right? Where you're just like picking out a portion of that. This is kind of how, re how um, Redux works, where you've got this like giant object base of data basically, and each component kind of picks out the pieces that it needs. But, um, but when you're server-side rendering, you need a way to like load in that initial data and so different, like I said, different frameworks handled this differently. The way Next.js handled it and the way a lot of components handled it, although slightly differently, is that you co-locate that, that uh, data fetching with the component that needs it. And I thought frame, like the, the original framework, going off on a huge tangent here, but the original React framework was called Relay. It was, it was developed by Facebook and it used GraphQL and each component, each React component in the component tree had a GraphQL fragment. And so when the server was rendering the entire page, it would essentially go down the React component tree, scooping up all of these GraphQL fragments and creating one huge GraphQL query that it would then run uh, to get all of the relevant data, you know, to, to populate the, the data store. So that, uh, so it was kind of like, um, you know, the idea is that you co-locate the, the data dependency of your component in the component itself. Anyway, next, I don't know, you know Next.js has gone like completely uh, insane <laughs> since then, not in a bad way, but just like the amount of features and things it has is like, it's way more than that now. And I think even, I think the Next.js team has even been working closely with the React team on like new React features because Next.js is kind of like pushing the boundaries of, uh, of React, especially when it comes to server-side server -side rendering. Yeah, just, you know, looking at their, their page where they've got a list of things they do, you know, data fetching is on there. Um, edge runtimes is on there, API routes, mm -hmm. client and server rendering, um, something called incremental static regeneration, which That's sounds... That's a mouthful. 
Yeah, and that, that kind of sounds similar to what we're talking about with, uh, you know, streaming over uh, fragments. For is that building. is that the uh, dynamic HTML streaming? Uh, it allows you to render your content in different ways depending on your application's use case. These include pre-rendering or static generation on the server side uh, and updating or creating content at runtime with incremental static regeneration. I kind of used it in its uh, definition, but <laughs> yeah, right. That's what I'm reading off of this. Um, Are you on the uh, data fetching page? Uh, yes, that's what I'm looking at. Okay. Yeah, I think this is like so. This is like the biggest. Um, I want to say this is like kind of like the biggest unsolved problem in uh, like single page apps is like with a multi page app traditional app. It's it's pretty like getting the data is pretty simple because the the um, the software that is responsible for fetching the data, updating the data, whatever with the data is is the same software that's like rendering the view. So as you're rendering the view, you know it's very simple. It's very easy to just grab the to dos from the database, put them in the view, you're done, right? But with uh, with single page apps, you're really dealing with like a distributed architecture here where the client is requesting data from the server and it has to like update parts of its UI. And um, it gets very, as we've just discussed, it's it can get very hairy and very tricky. And uh, you don't wanna fetch too much data, wasting resources. You don't wanna fetch too little data, obviously, because then your UI is in an inconsistent state. And um, there's different approaches to this, right? GraphQL, this was the whole reason that GraphQL was created because we needed a way to, um, REST just was not specific enough. Um, you could only really, you would have to, if you needed to fetch to-dos and um, I don't know, birthdays, right? You'd have to make two requests to a REST API to get that. Whereas with GraphQL, you can make a single request. But um, but yeah, where was I? <laughs> where was I going with that? Pre-rendering, static generation. Oh, static generation. That's that's another. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Now now I remember. This was the whole reason we used Next.js was the static generation. You could take your React components. Now, why we didn't just write HTML? That's another story. But you could take your React components, your pages, right, that were written in React. And you could just compile them into HTML and just render it with with S3 or something. Mm. So I think that was the original the original impetus for adopting Next.js. Um, now to get the now to do that, you have to get the data right. And we were using a headless CMS, so we would on the build step we would fetch the data from the CMS and we would put it in the React components, and then we would generate the static HTML pages. Anyway, all that, that is to say, <laughs> all that is to say that Vercel had a uh, had a keynote last week, right? And where they released a bunch of uh, new products. One of which is, so they they actually released three storage products. Now Vercel, they Vercel, I'm, I'm always going to say Vercel. They have um, they do a lot of edge computing or a lot of edge type 
stuff. That's kind of like a big part of Next.js, I believe. They have, so the, the three new storage products they have are um, for sell key, va key value, which is a serverless Redis solution that's easy and durable, powered by Upstash. Never heard of Upstash. Vercel po Versal Postgres, a serverless SQL database built for the front end, powered by Neon. Never heard of Neon. Um, and Vercel Blob, a solution to upload server, upload and serve files at the edge, powered by Cloudflare R2. So, yeah, I'm wondering, like, okay, what is the... What... Why, like, I guess my question is why? Why come out with a new Postgres uh, service? Yeah, so is that uh, is that run on the client or is that run in an edge data center? <laughs> That's a very good question. So it's um, apparently the first serverless SQL database built for the front-end cloud. There's a lot of buzzwords That's there. That's buzz to, right there. That we need to pick apart. We need to reduce the buzzing a little bit here. Yeah. So it's a serverless SQL database. Okay, to me, serverless means on-demand. So you don't have a SQL server running somewhere. You, you just like, if, 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 uh, SQL requests come in, it like spins up a new server, I guess, and runs the request, returns the response, and just like shuts down, right? That's kind of how serverless works. Yeah, so you're renting uh, somebody else's Postgres instance. Um, it, but it, wouldn't that just be like a regular Postgres server? Uh, like, a, like Heroku Postgres? Yeah, like Heroku Postgres or Aurora DB or any any cloud database instance i mean there you're bottlenecked by the i guess the, the physical server right? you can only do so many requests whereas with serverless it's like the idea anyway is that it's like infinitely scalable yeah um okay okay well maybe maybe they found some way where they have like this I don't know, petabyte or exabyte scale uh, Postgres instance that shards all over the place and you just have uh, some serverless API that accesses it or something? Yeah, I, I don't pretend to know how, it, how it's actually uh, architected behind the scenes, but um, I guess the key point there is that the API is serverless. Okay, so it's based on serverless this, API. It's based on this... Uh, this database or this company neon um which is the server this is the serverless postgres part right the fully managed multi-cloud postgres with a generous free tier um let's actually find out what the free tier is three gigabytes of data one gigabyte of ram okay i mean it's pretty generous i guess so the part that i'm totally baffled by is uh the front end cloud front and cloud i have no idea what that means and i'm not sure how this is built for it uh, you know i would guess that that has something to do with the that server-side rendered part we were talking about that yeah like if you're just 
you know, if you've got your your React app living in an S3 bucket, like the only way somebody can access that is they have to grab your bundle out of S3 and then load it, and then the browser has to you know do all this rendering. Right. Uh, as opposed to where Next has like these three different ways of um, rendering things out, where it, it can do server side, uh, it can do um, what do they call it? Incremental static regeneration. Uh, right. Whatever that is. Uh, or it can do that <laughs> the client side uh, fetching. So there's like a little bit of dynamic uh, in terms of which version do you want to run. And if that's all being yeah. hosted on an edge node, you know, edge nodes are cool. Yeah. Edge nodes are, I mean, they, they, they can be cool. They are cool, I should say. But... Um... There are definitely so yeah the idea for those that don't know of of like edge nodes is um, instead of having like a single database a single server um, in like say New York um, and just serving all the requests around the world from that one server you kind of like spread you you have like tons of servers hundreds maybe thousands of servers spread all over the world so that if somebody is requesting your site from Japan they don't have to go all the way to New York and back they can just go right to the Tokyo server and back. And so um, what was I going to say about that? Oh, I mean, the problem with that, not to go off on another tangent, is like if, you're, if your database is still like a single server in New York, uh, it can actually be less efficient because then your edge node has to go all the way to New York. You know, your edge node in Tokyo has to go all the way to New York and back. But anyway, um, okay, okay. So getting back, getting back to uh, Versal Postgres, it's fully managed, highly scalable, fault tolerant. Um, okay, so they have a little code snippet here where they are using they're 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 inside of a. Um, okay, so. This is what I was kind of talking about before, where uh, Versal was working with uh, the React team on some stuff. So there's a new thing in Next.js, I believe, called Server Actions, where there are basically just functions that you, that run on the server, but you can call them from the uh, front end from the client. So similar to like a an RPC, I guess, or about procedure. Wait, about procedure call. call? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I was trying to think of what the C was. Uh, so it's almost like a remote, uh, an RPC, right? Where you're defining this function that runs on the server. And we've seen this idea. I mean, I've seen this idea so many times. I'm kind of wondering how this is different, but this is where they're showing the uh, Postgres, uh, the Versal Postgres library in action where they're writing a SQL query. Um, and there's a redirect call, which I would assume is is actually one of those like incremental update things. I don't imagine they're actually like reloading the page. That would kind of defeat the whole purpose. But I suppose I wonder if like the idea is okay, you're your front end is already is already um, 
oh, what's the word? It's already on the edge, right? The problem is like, okay, your database is still in New York, so you still got to make this like round trip to New York. <clears throat> I wonder if the, the whole idea for this Postgres, this versal Postgres, is that your your Postgres is also on the edge. So I'm I'm reading about this a little bit, and it's I don't know it it's interesting. Um, so they are based on something called the neon storage engine mm -hmm. uh which is well i guess neon in general is uh it's an apache licensed alternative to aurora or google's cloud sql and okay it natively supports it they, they've got five things they natively support um and and kind of their killer app or killer feature is the ability to branch the database so and what does that mean yeah i'll give i'll give you a couple examples so uh let's say we've got you know we've got everything running in prod uh and we want to run some analytics um traditionally mm -hmm. running analytics is you know it can be computationally intensive it can mess up yeah. uh users you know because i don't care if this query takes like 10 seconds to run um yeah, so, you're doing like huge reads to get the analytic data that you need. Yeah, uh, and so what you can do is you can just branch prod, and now you've got another uh, endpoint that has everything in prod, but it's not going to touch prod. You can hmm. run your analytics on it. Okay, so it's almost like um, almost like setting up a. I mean, like traditionally, what you would do is you would like set up a follower database. Yep. But here you just like branch. You basically just branch it. And um, away you go. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, I guess it's wrapping that DevOps step of setting up the follow, setting up the wall file, setting up, like, waiting for things to stream in. You just branch, and then you've got access to this this copy of prod that it's not going to mess with prod. Uh, same thing, you can instantly back up the database. So you take a snapshot of it, um, or you, you create a branch I guess it would be like a backup branch mm -hmm. and then you've got backups. That's pretty uh, cool. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I guess they've got uh, automated database migrations. So it's caught like, mm, I don't know, ha having been using Postgres for, I don't know, 15 years, like this, this strikes me as, as it's interesting. Um, if someone is like primarily dealing with front end stuff, living in the node ecosystem, doesn't have, uh, you know, I guess the DevOps, uh, it's not the DevOps experience. It's like stopping to do DevOps. It's a context switch. It takes time. It takes, um, you know, usually it takes like some management uh, support to do DevOps things, either management or you've got a DevOps yeah. engineer, and this is just letting you do that stuff via an API, or I don't know if there's like some built-in uh, management dashboard that uh, Brussels putting together. So, you know, it's kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah, it does sound pretty interesting. You know, it, this goes back to that idea of conceptual compression. Uh, right. This is like some. I don't know if DHH coined this or, but, but it, he had a talk at some RubyConf 
about this where, you know, we don't, we used to have database administrators. We don't have that anymore. You're, you're kind of like conceptually compressing all like the stack, right? So you have less to think about. You have less, less and less DevOps to, to, um, to manage. And I wonder like what I would lo love to hear is, um, just like a, an elevator pitch of why I would want to use Neon. I, I, I'm probably not the target audience, but um, but I'd be curious to hear that pitch, pitch to whoever the target audience is. Yeah. I guess it's the same, I guess it's, I mean, I guess it's the same pitch that you would give to somebody that's looking at uh, serverless. It's the idea that um, you do not need to manage the um, the scaling manually, right? Like traditionally, you would you would get like a server. You might um, okay, you're getting some extra traffic. Let's beef up the server. Maybe let's add more servers and a node balancer. Mm. You're either scaling vertically or horizontally. Usually up, you don't usually scale down. So like if you get a peak, you know, you get some like spike in traffic that you need to account for. Um, Either you scale up and you anticipate that somehow and you can like scale up and handle it or you just you're on vacation and the site goes down. But with serverless, yeah, I think the whole idea here is like you you're just billed by the amount of requests, right? And it can handle any amount of requests. Because it's all like it's just like these little one off processes that spin up and spin down. Mm -hmm. So I, I would imagine the pitch for Neon is, is is pretty much the same. It's just applying that to the database. The other, I mean, the other really killer thing is uh, the ability to instantly create a database backup or restore a database backup. Yeah, um, for sure. By branching, like, you know, database backups are just, they're always a pain. Um, and especially if you're trying to restore a backup and you have to, you know, you bring up like a second server and then you got to load it up. And depending on the state of your master, if it's completely degraded and it's got to be in read only mode or there's like all of this stuff to think about. And if you can just say, oh, yeah, well, I, I actually take a snapshot every minute because it's that cheap. So yeah. here's the here's the backup from three minutes ago. Uh, and then you just, you know, promote it through the UI and then it's back up like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I would pitch that as, as something I've gone through that pain. And uh, that's that's a little bit easier than driving eight hours south to the data center and back to uh, to fix a failed database. For sure. I, so I actually found the page where it talks about how Versal Postgres works. I'm just going to read through it real quick. It's, it's pretty short. Do it. So, it's a, so when you create a Versal Postgres database in your dashboard, so I guess you get like if you have a Versal account, you have a dashboard sort of like a Roku. Um, a serverless database running Postgres version 15 is provisioned in the region you specify. Okay, this region is where read and write operations will be routed. Um, that's kind of interesting. I'll, I'll come back to that. We recommend choosing the same region as your serverless and edge functions for faster response times. After you, after creating the database, you cannot change its region. So. It creates a serverless. Okay, so it's not really edge. The database is not really edge, but it is serverless. 
So it's important that you create it in the same region as your um, as your um, whatever edge functions you're running for your server. Sorry, wait, no. We recommend choosing the same region as your serverless and edge functions. I thought the whole point of edge was that there is no region. Yeah, that, there's something fishy going on here. Am I am I just stupid or is or is that a little too many too much buzz going on in that sentence? Okay, I'm probably You're just stupid. Edge but. region. Well, I mean, it's possible that you're, you know, okay. What edge regions do you want to support? Okay, U.S. East, U.S. West, U.S. West, U.S. Hmm. East. Uh, you know, usually Japan or or Singapore. Like, which of these do you? Okay, want? that could be it. Uh, yeah. So, so that's that's for sell Postgres, and here's the bit about the Neon partnership. Versal Postgres is powered by a partnership with Neon. This means creating, deleting, and managing Postgres happens in the Versal dashboard. You do not need to create a Neon account to use Versal Postgres. Um, okay, Versal Postgres should not be considered SOC 2 Type 2 compliant. Okay, so it doesn't actually get into like the nuts and bolts of... of um, I thought it was going get, to get a little bit into more detail about like how this actually works kind of under the hood but I, my takeaway is that it's it's a serverless Postgres connection so you don't have to think about how much RAM it has uh, I guess maybe maybe you can, can, can configure that I probably shouldn't but that's kind of what I'm getting is like you don't have to worry about scaling because it's serverless mm-hmm yeah, uh, I mean, it's like Google Firebase uh, is it's similar, right? It's a serverless database. It's not Postgres. It's it's uh, NoSQL. Um, oh, Firebase is serverless? I didn't know that. Yep. Yeah, Firebase, you just, uh, you know, you spin up. Uh, uh, you don't even spin anything up. You just, like, set up what your models are and give it some examples of what the model looks like, and it, you know, it's just, it's like a JSON schema. Um, right. And you don't yeah, have to I do any database management whatsoever. Yeah, that's nice. I, I was thinking about using that for uh, Mochi, but but um, I had some issues with um, with the, like, offline usage and, um, and like, usage limits and things like that. So I, I just went open source. Yeah, you've got that, that unique syncing problem that uh yeah my 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 app is like i feel so lonely sometimes because it's such a unique architecture that a lot of this stuff is just like very it's sort of irrelevant to me a lot of the developments that are going on it's a completely different type of paradigm where you i mean like all of the data that the user creates is just like stored locally First, and then and then it's just synced to a database somewhere, and um, and so like most of the time they're when they're loading up the app, it's just like loading the HTML and JavaScript from their local machine or from the local cache, right? So I don't really worry too much. I mean, I do worry about bundle size, but um, it's not as important for me. And um, yeah, there's just a lot of things that that um that i have to that i have to worry about that most other apps don't and vice versa right 
Yeah. If anybody else is out there who has a, uh, a local first app, uh, you know, you're, you're not alone, even though you, you don't have any friends. It might seem like you are, but so there was actually a really good talk recently about uh, local first software. This was on, uh, I think this was on Hacker News, but these these guys, um, I don't know if it's a company or if it's just like a loose collective of uh, researchers, but it's called Ink and Switch. They've been doing a lot of research in this area for years. Um, they've been they've they've been working with. Um, Martin, I forget his name. He wrote the um, book on data intensive applications. It's an O'Reilly book. It's a really good book. They've been working with him, doing a lot of research on this local first stuff. They they created a library called Auto Merge, which is kind of like the uh, culmination of their research. It's a uh, it's a CRDT, a conflict free, conflict free replicated data type. That's a big fancy word that just means um, it's a way. It's like it's a, basically a database that allows you to um, kind of like take updates from different sources and sort of make sure that they all get applied to the data in a way that avoids any kind of conflicts. But yeah, there's a, there's a whole there's a whole big area of research around that, and um, anyway, a lot of the stuff that Versal offers the uh, it's all about getting the content to the user as quickly as possible, which I don't even really need to think about because like for most of my users, they've already like downloaded everything and they're just kind of running it locally. So it's a completely diff different class of problem. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, it's taking the edge to the, the, the complete extreme that you are the edge. Yeah, exactly. That's actually a really good point. Um, it is taking it to its logical <laughs> conclusion, I suppose, where um, now I could optimize the syncing so that each user, I have maybe I have like several, uh, maybe I have like an edge database. I don't even know if those exist, but but may, let's say I sharded my database in such a way that it was kind of distributed across the globe, and each user could sync when when the user, you know, each user would sync their data to whatever was the closest database. I don't know if if um, I'm using CouchDB, so I don't know if that's like something that is even is like built into CouchDB or, you know, there's been any research on that, but, but uh, anyway, I think we are, I think we've, we've, uh, we've hit our limit here. So <laughs> I think now is as good a time as any to uh, wrap it up. I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to talk about, but, um, but uh, I don't, so. Um. Uh, maybe I've just got one quote um, that uh, I, you know I just picked this up recently, and this I don't know it it's like it's quelled some of my nerves. It's not about AI, it's it's about um, uh, you know when I was first starting to write code, like where I you know really really got into it in college. I really loved writing in Perl. It was mm. it wasn't compiled. It was dynamic. Uh, mm -hmm. You could get a lot done in a little bit of code, and 
um, you know, pretty quickly I became this dinosaur because there are all these other languages coming at it. You know, I mean, I moved to Ruby in, I don't know, 2004, 2005, something like that. Never, never looked back. Um, I'm now like 18 years into the Ruby journey. And, uh, you know, I mean, just trying to find a, a Ruby meetup in Southern Arizona, it's like near impossible. Like there is right. literally no one in this town who, you know, it's a million people down here. Like nobody does Ruby. <laughs> There's a few JavaScript developers and, you know, it's like, I just start feeling like, am I this, this dinosaur? Uh, and this, this quote really, um, this is from Alan Kay who uh, he led the development of Smalltalk. He, I don't know if he led, but he was on the team that uh, did that Xerox, like mother of all demos where they're demoing the mouth and they're demoing the GUI. And um, Mm -hmm. what he said is that when excitement exceeds knowledge, you get fashion. When excitement when exceeds excitement exceeds knowledge, exceeds knowledge, you get fast. So he, is he talking about technology and programming there? Yep. Yeah. There, there's definitely a lot of excitement out there. I mean, especially in the AI space. Yep. <laughs> and uh, But that's a great quote. That is a good quote. And I think um, I always, you know, I, I, I follow DHH on Twitter. He always has great little nuggets he had one about um how much he hated typescript (laughs) which which i thought is great because like typescript if you follow if you read hacker news or if you're in this in the web development ecosystem you know it's the bee's knees right now everybody loves typescript um so it's just kind of refreshing and reassuring and you know dhh made his career on Ruby, which at the time was not a popular language by any stretch of the imagination. So, so I think um, if you're afraid of falling behind or if, you know, you're, you're afraid that you're picking the wrong language, I can kind of see that, but at the same time, it's really what you make of it. And I know like Paul Graham, I think one of his first startups was written in, in uh, Lisp. Right, and it was hugely successful. So it's all what you make make of it. There we go. Great place to end. And on that note, we will see you guys next week. Later. Adios.